so um so there's that that like there i don't think there's research there to even track it yeah. it's just not there but um from a from an anthropology standpoint my my bachelor's is in anthropology so kinship wise we're in a nuclear family which is like very mobile like you said because you move for family like you move for work reasons so it's like husband wife children and then other cultures don't do their family structure like that like they do like you were saying a tribe type thing um and so it's very taxing and it's just like in tribe where he's like we live in a we live in a world that is anti-human like we're not designed to live like this and that's why we have a lot of these issues so I would um yeah there's no research on seeing if it gets worse but I'd be curious if now that this word's a little bit more um out there if people will do research on it okay so um Dr. Sachs said so whether a woman changes her child um sorry whether a woman parents her child as her mother raised her or adopts a different style, becoming a mother provides an opportunity for a do-over. In a way, a woman gets to re-experience her own childhood in the act of parenting, repeating what was good and trying to improve what was not. If a woman had a difficult relationship with her mother, she may try to be the mother she, wish she wishes she'd had. So, in your experience with mothers, have you, and maybe your personal experience, um, have you seen this happen where you're basically like rediscovering your own mothering experience and then like either doing the same thing or changing it. I would say yes. And I would say that the, for the people who want to change it, the biggest problem comes when they say they want to change it, but they haven't done any work mm. or they're like, I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to be like my mom. I'm, I'm going to be different. But then they don't think about, well, how do I want to do that differently? Mm -hmm. And then it's almost like they beat themselves up more mm. because they fall back into those old patterns because they didn't do anything to make sure that that would change. Yeah. And I think that's part of, you know, the loneliness, the depression, like, hey, you know, my mom might have suffered from these things and I want to change that but I don't know how. Yeah. And so I think that's also part of where here now motherhood comes in, in terms mm -hmm. of like, maybe you do want to parent differently because you want a better support system than your parents had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's that like practical support of like, okay, what now? Like, I don't know. I, I was talking with someone I knew and I'm very, I'm very much a proponent of practical support with mothers from my personal experience and from what I've read and what I've seen. And they were like, well, don't you just want to kind of understand what's going on in your mind? And I'm like, I mean, that's a piece of it, but then you need to know what to do. You need like the steps after that. Anyways, so that's my take on it. <laughs> no, it's, um, this keeps coming up. I'm learning a lot about coaching versus therapy. Yeah. And people are like, you could spend five, 10 years in therapy and you'll mm -hmm. learn a lot but that doesn't move the needle. Yeah. The point of coaching is to move the needle mm -hmm. the fastest and like, great. Like we can drag up all the trauma, all the ways your parents parented you, all of these things. But if all we do is drag it up and don't give you actionable items to move forward, how are you going to know how to move forward? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to regress backwards?
kids. 100%. And that's where the practicality comes mm-hmm. in because if you don't have an action plan, you're not going to make any changes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good way to describe that. Um, have you looked into um, solution-based brief coaching before? No, but it sounds familiar. It's very awesome. So, um, is it a, is it's it a, a it's, uh, I think they have a book for it. It's a style of coaching. Um, they, brief coaching. brief coaching. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the perspective I come from as well, um, with mothers and with people in general. So the first question that you want to ask, I like to call it, do you have a cat question? So, um, there was this guy that I knew that he, um, for some reason he went to this cat expo. He didn't have a cat, but he went to this cat expo. Um, he's a friend of a friend that went, his name's Kenyon. So he went to this cat expo and he's just kind of browsing around, doesn't have a cat. And he kind of slows down by this booth that they're doing, um, kitty litter. And so the guy just starts launching into his like sales pitch about kitty litter, does his whole thing, tries to close and is like, Hey, like, let's get you some kitty litter. And Kenyon's like, I don't have a cat. And he's like, like, you should ask at the beginning, do you have a cat, you know, and then you can move forward. Like, like for example, um, so, and like the application of that would be like, um, like as a mom, like, so, um, I was, um, I met this lady that she, um, she's like, she was telling me that she had stopped smoking before, but she wanted to stop again. And we, since we have Wowen on here, the 12 step women's group, like I, I know that that's, can, that can be very good for, um, for like quitting an addictive habit. So I was like, I was like, do 12 step groups work for you? And she's like, no. And I'm like, okay. And there's no need for me to try to pitch her to come to this Wowanon because like, I'm asking if she has a cat, you know, yeah. like check in first or like things like, like, and with her, there's been a couple things like that where she'll kind of express like, oh, I want to do this, this, this. And I'm like, do you already like, what's worked for you in the past? And she's like, oh, this has worked for me in the past. And I'm like, okay, so you just need to do that again. She's like, yeah, I'm like, okay, I don't need to give you a solution here. You just, I need to ask if you have a cat first. You know, anyways, that's why I like solution, solution-based brief coaching, because I think it's important to do that with moms here too, of like, ask if they have a cat, you know, like, do you, like, are you tired? Do you, do you want to get more sleep? And some people are like, no, I'm fine. Like, okay, cool. You don't, I don't need to even bring up yoga nature then. It's fine. So anyways, um, Okay. And that doesn't mean you can't use assumptive language if you want to for different reasons, but when you're for certain reasons, you, you can just be, you can check ahead of time before trying to convince them to do something. (laughs) Um, okay. So, um, ambivalence is another thing. So the British psychotherapist, I don't know how to pronounce this, something Parker wrote in torn into the experience of maternal, uh, maternal ambivalence about the pull and push of wanting a child close and also crazy craving space physically and emotionally as the normal wave of motherhood. Ambivalence is a feeling that comes up in the roles and relationships of a person um, is most in, they come up in the roles and relationships a person is most invested in because they're always a, there's always a juggling act giving and taking. Motherhood is no exception. Part of why people have a hard time dealing with ambivalence is that it's uncomfortable to feel two opposing things at the same time. 
Most of the time, the experience of motherhood is not good or bad. It's both good and bad. It's important to learn how to tolerate and even get comfortable with the discomfort of ambivalence. So ambivalence is wanting two opposite things at the same time. And then having to deal with the discomfort that comes with that. So I think for me, that is wanting to be with my baby and not wanting to be with him. So like having like the other day, a few weeks ago, I just had this meltdown where I was like, (laughs) you know, like crying. and was like, I think I need to put JJ in full-time daycare and like change around how things are working like day to day for me to make that happen. And it was like, it was like brought up all of this like ambivalent stuff like but I want to be with my baby I love my baby also I'm a much happier human being when I have some space for my baby and our relationship is better when I have some space from him so I don't know how do you see this apply in mothers or in yourself I think it comes back to kind of what we're taught as women like you have to be a good mom you have Mm -hmm. to be a good wife you have to be all of these things and that's why are you familiar with Rachel Hollis from yeah. Wash Your Face? People either tend to love or hate her. I don't like her. <laughs> what I love about her is that she's like, you can be both. Mm. Like, you can be both, you know, a, a worker, you know, have mm-hmm. your own company, be an entrepreneur, start your own business, and be a good mama. Mm-hmm. It has to do with, are you present? Are you... Um, like excited when your kid's there because if the only time and there I've actually read other studies from her like after her saying that in various books I've read that what your kids notice is like is mommy stressed is daddy this and Mm -hmm. they notice if you're present with them and if Mm. you're running around trying to juggle everything with them then you're not really present yeah you know you get that space from them then when they are there you're so present with them that is your focus versus, you know, maybe in that day of like juggling, you gave them 10 minutes, but if they, you know, you have that space, you can give them like an hour Mm -hmm. and then you're happy in that hour and that's what they remember and that's what they see. And so I think starting to get rid of these, you know, lies that we've been told culturally and socially, like, oh, you have to be a good mother. What does that mean to me? And for some, it is being 100% stay at home because that is, like, you can tell. They're the ones who make, like, the crazy cupcakes that are ladybugs that have, you know, a surprise Mm -hmm. filling. And, Mm -hmm. like, that lights them up. But it's also okay to be lit up by other things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why there is a daycare industry and a childcare industry Mm -hmm. because those people are so good at it. Mm -hmm. And if I don't give them that opportunity to be good at it what is that doing to me mm-hmm. and my opportunity to do to be good at the thing I'm supposed to be good at yeah and so I think we can have both and it is good and bad and we need to start getting rid of those lies that we can't mm-hmm. and that it is gonna you know your feelings are gonna go both ways but to be told like oh you can only have it one way I don't think is true and I think that's mm-hmm. it comes up so much in motherhood like mm-hmm. not just you know one aspect it's like all, all of the different paths of life. Like, oh, I need to be a good wife and a good mom. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sleeping with my son and not my husband. You know, like, yeah. so there's just so much of that going on, and it's really hard because 
there's so much we've been taught that needs to go away and we need examples living the other direction, which is why I like Rachel Hollis, because she is one of the only famous people out there being like, this is really hard. I have a, a full-time person who helps me with my children and I'm, I am a good mom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if she's a good mom or not, but she's one of the only role models out there saying, I'm, I can be an entrepreneur and a good mom and people need to stop telling you that you can't. Yeah, and that's really important. That, yeah, I think that's very well said. Um, I think another way that, like, yoga can help with this, you know, or meditation is being able, like, learning how to sit with those conflicting feelings and Absolutely. practicing that, you know. And then having this mommy lounge space or just this community where you can see different perspectives and different ways of doing things and it doesn't mean that they're right and you're wrong or anything like that but mm -hmm. you're like oh look at all these boats happening look at all mm -hmm. these options these ands yeah. yes yeah and as you were saying that I thought of the, the girl that runs the play date group the play group that we have on twice a month here oh, okay. she um she was like, oh, I want to have some topics to discuss. I was like, okay, what sorts of things are you thinking? And it was all very, like, practical stuff to get other people's opinions on, like, traveling with babies, you know, and, like, getting everyone's opinion in and seeing, like, what works for you, what doesn't. And anyways, just bringing in everyone else's opinion, whether it's practical or, you know, big picture, what is motherhood to you, you know? Yeah. Um, Okay, so then there's also fantasy versus reality. So a woman's fantasies of pregnancy and motherhood are informed by her observations of, of the experiences of her own mother and other female relatives and friends and her community and culture. They may be powerful enough that reality disappoints if it doesn't align with her vision. So um, one thing I learned at this training that I didn't understand before was with miscarriages that... I thought that a miscarriage was losing a baby, but really a miscarriage is losing your expectations. So it's, you could have like a miscarriage experience without ever having a positive pregnancy test. And I've seen that happen before where women say I've had two miscarriages, but they never had a positive pregnancy test. And I was like, what is going on here? And then I learned, I was like, they did have a miscarriage. Because when you think of the word pregnant, you could even say, I'm pregnant with ideas. Like, these possibilities are inside me, basically. Mm -hmm. So if you lose that of this, like, um, your expectations of what's going to happen, if you lose that, then it's as huge as losing a physical baby. So it's the same kind of thing here, where... It's so powerful that it has these really huge emotional things that are tied into it. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this fantasy versus reality? I agree because just like you were saying earlier that, you know, we've grown up nurturing our baby dolls. And, you know, if there were siblings involved, depending on where you were in the hierarchy, playing house and being the mom or the mm -hmm. dad or, you know, playing out these things like you you know you know you've probably envisioned even if you didn't build a nursery like 
oh, what colors I would get. But pe- people have name lists before they ever even think about getting pregnant, just right. like our weddings. It's yeah. like the same idea, like, what did I want that to look like? Mm-hmm. And then when you start trying, it, like, takes it up a notch. And then you start, like, envisioning things. And so the more you're envisioning these things, planning them, it is a form of reality in a sense that, like, you've seen it. Like, yeah. you're, you know what that world could look like. Mm-hmm. And then when it's taken away it's so much it's so devastating and we don't talk about it we're like oh i've heard one of my friends had a miscarriage and she's a biochemist and i know this was just her way of coping but she's like oh i know it's just a cluster of cells i know it's just my body getting rid of something that wasn't going to work and i'm like you can know that on a scientific level but that is not the same as working through it on an emotional level Mm -hmm. and all of this excitement like you know it was she was going to give the pregnancy test to her husband on his birthday. Like, that's uh, when she found out. And it's like, yeah. you know the story was set. You know. Oh, yeah. And she had an idea of what, how that was going to go. Like, the look on his face when he opened it. And and then all of that's taken away from you. Mm-hmm. And then, depending on, you know, how far along you are in that, now it's not just your visions. It's everybody else's visions. So, did your husband know? Well, now you have to take his vision away. Did your parents know now you're taking their vision away Mm -hmm. and it like that devastation starts to ripple out um to the point where I had a friend whose first baby um was like a very late miscarriage like had the baby showers had everything and then for her second pregnancy her husband's mom so her mother-in-law was like I don't want to be involved in this baby because I can't handle losing it Mm. So, like, there were no showers, there was no, you know, none of that. And I think that's so true, and that's just on the miscarriage level. Now take it, did you want a boy or girl? Mm -hmm. What kind of birth did you want to have? Like, Mm -hmm. layer everything else on top of it as life goes. Like, Mm -hmm. how did you think you were going to mother? Like, nobody thinks, like, oh, I'm going to have postpartum psychosis and be put in a mental hospital you think you're going to be Mary Poppins, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's like anything that happens wrecks your reality because of course we're going to look for like what we want to have happen. And especially from a yoga perspective, manifesting that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, things happen or, you know, other outside things we can't control. And it's like all of, all of that, like literally like, Mm -hmm. is my baby healthy? is my baby not healthy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's just within, like, the first couple months, like, then you have that whole lifetime of that, like, oh, my son's gonna grow up to be a doctor, or my daughter's gonna grow up to be a doctor, or an artist, or whatever, and it's, mm-hmm. it propagates through literally our whole lives. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and then that's not even to mention the um, personal, like, shame that comes, because, in our culture, we think of the baby as, like, the it's the woman is responsible for, like, we expect a pregnancy. If someone gets pregnant, we expect it to go to term. And so then if it doesn't, obviously it was the mom. And so then that just sets up moms to have to be perfect during this pregnancy, which then sets them up to be perfect during motherhood as well. And... Um, is just a very interesting thing. Okay, so the next thing is guilt, shame, and the good enough mother. So there's also the ideal mother in a woman's mind. 
she's always cheerful and happy, like that Mary Poppins you said, um, and puts her child's needs first. She has few needs of her own. She doesn't make decisions that she regrets. Most women compare themselves to that mother, but they never measure up because she's a fantasy. Some women like that good enough. Uh, some women think that good enough, a phrase coined by pediatrician and psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott, is not acceptable because it sounds like settling. But striving per for perfection sets women up to feel shame and guilt. Mothers will feel guilty because they're always making challenging and sometimes impossible choices. At times, they are required to put their own needs over those of their children. Most women don't talk about feeling ashamed because it's usually about something that they don't want anyone else to know. Shame is the feeling that there's something wrong with me. This is often the result of comparing yourself to an unrealistic, unattainable standard. Too many women are ashamed to speak openly about their complicated experiences of fear of being judged. Um, about their complicated experiences for fear of being judged. This type of social, social isolation may even trigger postpartum depression. When women find themselves feeling lost somewhere between who they were before motherhood and who they think they should be now, many, women, uh, many worry that something is terribly wrong when in fact this discomfort is absolutely common. Um, one thing I think is very interesting is this good enough phrase. So if, if you're to say, like, like, the, like the rug is a little wrinkled, I'm like, that's good enough, then I can move on. But if I put that on myself as a mother, it starts getting really scary. Like, um, my mom uses the mantra, like, I am enough. And it has a great power to her. And I know a lot of people use that one. So I was meditating once and I was like, oh, I'm going to like borrow my mom's mantra. I'm going to try that. And then I was like, I wonder. And I like put that like I am enough on me and JJ, like in my mind. I was filled with panic and fear. And it was, I was like, whoa, this is very intense. And it was this whole thing of like, as soon as you say I'm a good enough mom, it is not a compliment. It is, it starts getting real. <laughs> and so I just, I think it's, um, one, it's, it's good for me to know that when I'm talking with other moms, that I'm not going to say you're a good enough mom, because that's an insult. That's saying you're a crappy mom in their mind. That's how we yeah. translate it. Um, when really it's, what I'm trying to say is like, you're heroic. Your efforts are worthy. Yeah, and you're you're doing enough. Like you're doing more than enough. You are excelling as a mother. You know that's like what that's that's what we want to hear. You know, and that's when I say you're enough. That's what I mean. So I might as well just use those words when I'm talking to them and just kind of avoid saying you're enough. You're you're a good enough mom because nobody wants to hear that. But um, so it's just kind of keeping that in mind this whole concept of the good enough mother, but yeah, but it's also, um, and then do you work, do you work with Brene Brown? Do you, do you read her I've stuff? I've read almost all of her books yeah. except for her first one. Yeah. Her, her stuff always, I don't know, ever like when it comes to shame, she's like the big name in that. So 
I just, um, yeah, so what are your thoughts on, on this whole thing with the good enough mother and guilt and shame? Well, and I think we use good enough in our society as, like, we use it as I'm half-assing it, mm. in a way. Mm. Like, 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 oh, it's good enough. Like, because that phrase can mean such a big spectrum, that's mm. part of why when we apply it to motherhood, that's why it's not okay. enough, because depending on who is using it and how they've used it in their lives, like, mm-hmm. oh, this, like, broken window is good enough. Yeah. So I think that that um, factors into... Like, what meaning phrase. you personally have with it. Yes. Yeah. And then the guilt and shame, um, I think some of that comes from our expectation versus reality and the stories we tell ourselves about other moms. Mm. So, for example, I see a mom, and she, you know, has two kids, and she's got her makeup done, and her hair's done really nice, Mm -hmm. and, like, she just, you know, looks fit, and just, like, is smiling and happy, and, like, to me looks perfect, and I start telling myself a story about her. Yeah. And the assumptions I make, and I start comparing myself to her. And I think that's also where some of that guilt and shame is, is because we project and we don't know everybody's real stories. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, maybe she's breaking down on the inside and the reason she's wearing makeup is her mask to stay safe. You know, Mm -hmm. like we don't know what's actually going on. Or maybe she hasn't worn makeup in the last year and she was like, I'm going to try wearing makeup today and doing my hair. And I haven't done this in a long time, (laughs) you know, like you don't know. Yeah. And so I think that's, we add to our own guilt and shame when we start telling those stories. Yeah. I'm just going to open this up a little bit. You might be able to do that better than me. Okay, yeah, go for it.
Okay, so the last thing with um, Dr. Sachs, she says, as the Yale psych, uh, psych, sorry, Yale psychiatrist Rosemary H. Balsam showed in an article in February in the Journal of American Psychoanalytic Association, the history of psychiatrists ignoring how pre pregnancy impacts a woman's development can be traced back to Freud. Women are often left with a false binary. Either they have postpartum depression or they should breeze through this transition to motherhood. So that's kind of where that, that discomfort realm comes in, that there is something in the middle and that's where our specialty lies. So knowing the cause of distress and feeling comfortable talking about them with others is critical to growing into, well -adjusted, into a well-adjusted mother. It will help new mothers and those around them to acknowledge that while postpartum depression is an extreme manifestation of the transition to motherhood, even those who do not experience it are undergoing a significant transformation. So a lot of times what I say, like, if you don't have a mental illness, like, then what do you do? Because you don't know where else to go for help or support or like, wh where do I go now? And so that's where Hannah comes in. Um, another interesting thing with matrescence, if you go to matrescence.com, there's a, um, a lady named Dr. I don't know how to say her first name. Athen is her last name. She teaches at Columbia University and she does, um, um, she does research on matrescence. In one of her articles, she talks about how mothers, when mothers tell their story about becoming a mother, they're, they, they, they're telling the story of like um, a hero, like, like the Odyssey or something like that. And so um, I really like that of being like mothers are heroes.